We're not asking for a lot. Senators reach a tentative deal on new gun safety legislation. We're demanding change and we're demanding change now. And I'll talk with Crane's contributor Judith Crown about challenges meeting lawyers of color at law firms and what's being done to create change. It's just that those large law firms are very staid. You know, it's the way they've always done business. People said this is one of the last old boys clubs. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, June 14th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's contributor, Judith Crown, here to talk about some reporting she recently did about challenges still faced by black and brown lawyers. Welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Good to be here. So tell me about this story that you recently did. It's, it's more of a nuanced issue because it's not that there aren't opportunities for black and brown lawyers. And after George Floyd, there were more opportunities to join law firms. Certainly there's more recruiting. There's joining at the associate level. Where the real roadblock comes in is that leap to a capital partner. Those are the lawyers that are owners of the company. They make the decisions. They're on the management committee. And that's really hard to get to because you need a book of business. Traditionally, that's how lawyers get together. It's not just a profession, it's a business. At the midsize and really larger firms, that's hard to do. There's a few ways you can do it. So you can be mentored by a senior partner who takes you under his wing and introduces you to the clients and over time would pass that business on to you. Or you get credit for originating new business, which is a viable option. The problem is with that is if there's an established client, even if you just get a new case at that established client, the credit doesn't go to you. It goes to the first partner that opened that business. So it's really hard to get that book of business at the largest firms, supposedly you need a a million to $2 million worth of business to, to get into that upper echelon. And many associates see that roadblock and they leave to go into, they have good careers in, could be government, could be in a nonprofit, it could be in-house counsel. Uh, So that's what happens in the common denominator is they didn't, they saw a roadblock and they knew they weren't going to make partner. The exception is at smaller firms, which maybe don't have the same relationships with big Fortune 500 clients. So if they have a smaller universe, you know, there seems to be more opportunities. The percentages of minority partners at small firms seems to be much better, about 10%. But at the larger firms, it's like 2%. Which, which is pretty tough to overcome. Sure. So after the murder of George Floyd in, in May of 2020, it seemed like a lot of companies, including law firms, were talking about expanding 
diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and, and being more thoughtful about that kind of thing. Did we see that number change at all? Did we see more, more lawyers of color becoming partner after that? And not at that highest level at the large law firms. So again, you saw more interest in recruiting, bringing black and brown attorneys into associate ranks, and you saw some more movement at small law firms. But it's still a roadblock at those largest firms. And one thing that happens is interesting. So they may be busy. You know, there's two levels of partner. You can be an income partner or you can be an equity partner. And so sometimes good black and brown attorneys become income partners and might be really busy and they might have a great income because they're really busy and they could be managing teams, but they're too busy to go out and, and get that business themselves. They're in a bit of a vicious cycle, very busy, enjoying their work, being good at it, but they're not getting the credit for it. Or what they can do then, they could walk away and say, okay, I'm going to build my own book of business. But then they're not, they're, they're essentially marketing themselves and not getting, generating income for themselves. So they're kind of in a bind there. And that's why many do go into government service or, you know, other fields where there are good opportunities. It's just that those large law firms are very staid. You know, it's the way they've always done business. People said this is one of the last old boys clubs because maybe these partners are well-established. They have relationships with, with the clients that go back, could be decades. It, and they're not publicly held. They're not accountable. There might be some real senior lawyers there who do it the way they've always done it. So it's really not even about, uh, about a pipeline from law school or recruiting. It's really kind of about inclusion and retention once you're at the firm. Absolutely. One, one of our um, sources said it's not about recruiting at all. It's absolutely about that retention and moving up and finding ways, ways to move up. Another interesting aspect of this is their publicly held clients seem to be ahead of them. And publicly held companies are being pressured and they're public. You know, they're being pressured for more ESG, right? Environmental, social and governance accountability so they're pushing their law firms to do more, and they are pushing for more Black lawyers on their work. But again, the, the rub here is that they're not interfering in the internal process of the law firm. Right. They may want them on their work, and they really like their work, but that's not going to help the lawyer get into that upper echelon of power. So what will? What, what kind of things are underway to try to, to combat this and fix it? Well, there's a few things. So... There are some interesting initiatives that are trying to at least shine a light on this. There's something called the Mansfield Rule, which is patterned after the Rooney Rule in the NFL, which simply says to promote or advance attorneys, 30% of your candidates should be minority or I think minority women LGBT. And this group, it's managed by an incubator called Diversity Lab and uh, law firms sign on to this, and there is kind of a rigorous process. They report on what they're doing throughout the year, and there's between 150 and 200 law firm, national law firms in, involved in this. And it's kind of bragging rights. They can say we're Mansfield Plus, which is a, a higher designation. Now, there's a rub here in that they only have to consider Black and Brown and women candidates. They don't have to actually employ them. So if they really wanted to, they could just go through the motions. And 
that can happen sometimes. In fact, there was an infamous anecdote in the NFL that got tons of publicity where a well-known black coach was somewhat being recruited, but it turned out it was really bogus. Before he could even interview, they had already decided who to hire. And this coach is suing the NFL. So it just sort of showed that that this can be really, (laughs) this can be completely bogus if companies don't want to, you know, take it seriously. There's another initiative, um, which is also promising. It's an a, it's an American Bar Association rule where public companies have become signatories to, to promote diversity at their law firms. And there's a very, you know, high profile names like J.P. Morgan Chase and a lot of Chicago companies like Hyatt and I think McDonald's are involved. And what they do is they give a survey to their law firms and they fill it out. And so the, the company can compare their law firms and see how well they're doing. Now, it's public on who are the signatories, but it's not public on which law firms are participating and how well they're doing. So there's no transparency there really for the public. Sure. But again, we, we interviewed some uh, law firms who are doing some different things. Um, one law firm said, We're, we don't use these origination credit book of business standards to evaluate who should be a partner. We look at their performance. <laughs> we look at public service work they're doing, responsibility and, and all kinds of things like that. There's still a central partner who is sort of the, you know, when things go wrong, that's the person to contact. But again, the, the, there are different ways of, um, of doing this. Another firm we talked to doesn't make a distinction between equity and non-equity partner. So all the partners are equity. It doesn't mean they all get paid the same. But they said, well, it's a little more of a level playing field and you don't have that stigma of getting stuck as an income partner. It is interesting, the idea of kind of flipping the model on its head of how partnership is even evaluated. I think that's interesting because there's plenty of excellent lawyers that are, you know, maybe spending a certain amount of their time doing pro bono work or something like that, that that's still a valuable contribution. So that's kind of interesting to get that folded into the consideration for it. But in the end, one, one lawyer just said, it'll take a while to change because law is a business. <laughs> so people are under the impression it's a profession. And I guess it is a profession, but it is a business. And the question is, is, diver- is pursuing diversity, does it, does it make more money for these law firms? Does, does, it, does it really help their bottom line? And so they may not be too excited about it. And then Another uh, of our sources just said, you know, the old guard is just going to have to die off at at these law firms and have another generation come in that is just more excited about diversity. And, you know, the, the publicly held companies are more diverse. So they may have a very diverse team with different races and some nationalities, viewpoints, and that would be good to, to match against the law firm. Sure. Although, as you kind of have an apples and oranges situation. Yeah, certainly. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you so much for talking this through today. I appreciate your time. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Chicago ranks sixth for life sciences growth. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. 
This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators reached a tentative deal on new gun safety legislation. Senators led by Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Republican John Cornyn of Texas said the deal includes giving grants to states for so-called red flag laws allowing courts to remove guns from potentially dangerous owners and more funding for mental health services and school safety. The agreement also includes provisions to improve records available for background checks for younger gun buyers and would close what's often referred to as the boyfriend loophole by ensuring that records of domestic violence abuse convictions and domestic violence restraining orders are included in a national system for background checks, even if an abuser still has a relationship with their victim. It also provides new penalties for those who illegally make straw purchases and traffic guns or those who evade licensing requirements. Bloomberg noted in reporting that significantly 10 Republicans signed on to the proposal, which is the number that would be needed to move legislation past an expected filibuster in the Senate. And the agreement is a breakthrough after years of very little progress in Congress on gun legislation. But negotiators still must agree on all the details as they draft legislation in coming days. Some of the negotiators told reporters their hopeful legislation could move before the Senate leaves for a July 4th holiday recess. Reaching a deal beyond that point could get harder, as lawmakers increasingly will focus on the looming midterm elections. While Chicago, Cook County, and much of the rest of the state remain at the high-risk level for COVID-19 and numbers continue to rise around the state, public health officials say the message is still the same. Indoor masking is highly recommended, and vaccinations and boosters are vital to keep people out of the hospital. IDPH said in a statement that 32 Illinois counties are now rated at high community spread level for COVID-19 in northern Illinois, as well as several in the central and southern parts of the state. Dr. Michelle Mitchell, Oak Street Health's regional medical director, told Cranes it's natural for people to feel a little fatigued by COVID and want to move on. But for some of the most vulnerable in the population, the elderly and people with chronic conditions, it's even more important to be extra cautious. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that after losing one retailer after another over the past three years, the Mag Mile is now gaining a big one. Women's clothing chain Aritzia plans to open a store in the former Gap building at 555 North Michigan Avenue, according to CBRE, which brokered the retailer's lease of the space. And at 46,000 square feet, it's the largest retail lease on the Mag Mile since 2015. About a quarter of the retail space on the Mag Mile is vacant after the departure of Gap, as well as Macy's, Uniqlo, and other tenants. Vancouver, Canada-based Aritzia, which opened its first U.S. store in Seattle in 2007, has been expanding steadily in the U.S., where it now has 41 locations. It closed a store in Water Tower Place earlier in the pandemic, but in the Chicago area, Aritzia also operates stores in Westfield Old Orchard Mall in Skokie, Oakbrook Center in Oakbrook, and on Rush Street in the Gold Coast. It said it will continue to operate the Rush Street store, which totals about 8,000 square feet. The chain expects to open the new Mag Mile store in late 2023 or early 2024, according to the company. Chicago's life sciences industry, which has been touted by economic development experts as one of the city's next big business sectors, ranks among the top U.S. cities for job growth in the sector over the last several years, according to new data. And of the top 25 life sciences markets in the U.S., Chicago ranks sixth for job growth in that sector, with the numbers of jobs growing 31% from 10,000 in 2015 to over 13,000 in 2020, according to a report from CBRE. That's a higher growth rate than in places like Boston and New York, though both have more than double the total amount of life sciences jobs as compared to Chicago. 
That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Judith Crown. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.